Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Machine Learning, a pod about the machine from Pod Against the Machine, the only podcast with a supplementary podcast with a 25-word title. I am your host for this month, uh, Jero, and with me are in the order they are in my Skype window, Zach. Hello. Sam. Howdy. And Jeff. Hello. And for this month of November, which it certainly is when we're recording this. So first off this month, we had episode 46, The Bry Sessions. Started off with a little vignette of some type of creature kind of surveying its domain and thinking it's weird mutant creature thoughts to itself. After which we smash cut back into what I believe was week seven of Asher versus the Green Bird. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds right. I'm impressed that I made it through without running out of ammo. <laughs> that fight was hilarious. So we finished up the last of our combat with the Smilers. We looted them for their stuff. Kira got herself a fancy new bow. We gave a job offer to Clarence, which, unfortunately, by this point, he had become far too famous for uh, mm. joining our little group, so he unfortunately declined. Yeah, I think he's about ready to start on his um, live speaking tour. He's become like a sort of motivational guru. It's good to know we were a stepping stone for him to his final calling. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. At this point, we're lucky yeah. just to be able to say we knew him when. Yeah. Yeah, it was mm -hmm. good get while we had it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, catch him at your local library and school on his Punching Birds, Punching Fear tour. <laughs> speaking of speaking events, we also got a uh, nice little Zacademy bit in this episode talking about arcane spell failure. If there's one thing Brixby knows, it's failing, especially as it relates to arcane spells. Yep. <laughs> Unlike melee combat, where he is a martial <laughs> expert. It's <laughs> true. Truly a giant in the field. Maybe not in stature, but obviously in heart. <laughs> yeah, but we, uh, we did coup and install a new head, though, mm -hmm. of the old Steelhawks. So that was nice. Yeah, we went back to uh, Sephiroth, and we let her know that she is now in charge of the Steelhawks. Yeah, we let her make out herself at home. <laughs> we decided to finally ask her about the stuff going on in town. Uh, roughly a month and a half after arriving, we finally learn about the other gangs. She tells us about the Smilers and their interesting uh, leader, she tells us about the Red Tooths. She tells us about the Thralls and how they are seemingly not much around anymore. And she gives us a little bit of info about the Lords of Rush showing up and kind of taking over. What everybody think about kind of learning about the various factions in town? I think it was interesting when I initially 
conceived of the Lords of Rust, I didn't think of it as like they controlled disparate gangs that also retained their own identities. I thought it, they were a larger, kind of closer to the Thralls of Hellion situation. So it was definitely neat to see that breakdown between like Red Tooth and the Smilers and Marrow and the Thralls of Hellion and how creepy that description of them was. But yeah, no, I think it was nice. I think we had a visual corollary at that time that Sam provided of like all of the uh, different territories inside of Scrapwall, which was cool. It was a it was a really like kind of gamified feeling of territories that we kind of had to um, well invade and aggro accordingly. Well, it's very much the the rampage map where as you complete missions, you zoom out and then you get just like the big four frame animated King Kong punching the <laughs> section of scrap wall until it turns colors. This is true. Yeah, that's man. Take the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to have a much less uh, broadly reaching thought as the beloved Rampage. And that for me, it just helped really give scope to Scrap Wall. It really kind of helped me realize as a player, like just how big this place was. It's one thing to kind of hear this, you know, the walls of Scrap go for miles. And I could kind of figure that in my brain. But then seeing how much room there was for all these gangs to to go about their business and then there's this over here and that over there and and they took some of this and their territory is even smaller than it was before it was a for one it made it seem instantly more populous but also just kind of helped me come to understand that this is this is no helped me realize this wasn't just a tiny little outpost it was a more even though it's not an official city it's a big old place full of gangs, just like it's been said, but now I could feel it. And like you said, even though it's not an official, like, recognized city, like, it obviously has a population, like, the same, if not larger, than Torch. What is the population, Sam? There's no official um, population. There's no, like, town stat block for Scrapwall. Largely, I think, because there's no way to know there's no official government overall and there's no like keeping track of who's where and like there's no normal shops and stuff it's it's not a town it's like i don't know what you would consider it it's a giant garbage dump where people live and it's almost as big as manhattan yeah it's like a shanty town it's like the what's that, what was that called the walled city kowloon walled city yes yeah yeah, no, I mean, all the more reason uh, for us in episode 47 to become the very census for. Yes. And uh, begin counting the residents of the various gangs. Same thought, like we've got to formalize a town charter, do a census, establish law in this lawless town. <laughs> but we aren't yet in episode 47 because we still haven't met one of the more important characters. Yeah. Of this time, right? And who is that, Jarrell? <laughs> uh, that is a woman known as Dinvaya, who is, we are told by Sephiroth, is a crazy hermit who lives in a giant scrap castle. <laughs> so that's rather interesting. So the very capable four get some directions to her house. We head over there and we are immediately attacked by a giant golem made of scrap <laughs> that we decide to 
Well, let's uh, let's have Zax <laughs> tell us what exactly happened in that fight. Well, okay. So, <laughs> understandably, I think I've used some spells by this point. I am just like, oh, it's the best thing to do. Area control, I'm just going to cast Grease. So, I believe the material component for that's a little bit of butter. So, you know, he pulls out his country crock tub and scoops a bit out. And, uh, yeah, just haste the darn junk golem. That's not great, Sam. So why did you adjust the stat block to include that? Um, well, I just thought that I would be mean. Um, and if by adjust the stat block you mean I totally forgot that golems are immune to most magic and I should have yes. referenced the um, special cases for that when I was looking at the stat block because almost every type of golem be like, no spells work on them except these spells that work wrong, which is usually pretty fun. Grease generally will work because it's a pop it on the floor conjuration bad boy, as does like glitter dust. A lot of stuff in that. It, it is true, and that's like an interesting thing to kind of um, yeah. delve into for a sec, like for a second. As a magic user, you do not have a lot of uh, tools against the golem at all. Almost all of them come from the conjuration school in one way or another. But yeah, despite like dropping the golem, which as a sort of meta thing. You usually know that Reflex is kind of a low save for a big, clumsy, constructed creature. I instead turned it into a well-oiled machine. Uh, so, but yeah, we still prevailed. Yeah, it wasn't that big of a, a threat in an actual fight, I don't think. But it was definitely fun to have it break down into a swarm and have that reveal. That was uh, very unexpected when we hit it and then suddenly... Instead of one thing, we have a swarm of a million tiny robots coming at us. It was uh, very uh, surprising. If only we had a clasp. Mm -hmm. But wait. <laughs> had a clasp, just not somebody who succeeds at hitting things with projectiles, especially green birds. But we did manage to uh, kill it in the classic uh, Diablo 2 way of swinging once at it with a sword and somehow killing every member of the swarm. <laughs> we solved it as we do most of our problems with Izzy. Yep, yes. that's, <laughs> that's how we did it. <laughs> as with most things, having a character that deals multiple damage die on every swing and basically can't miss is usually the way to fix it. <laughs> Yeah, that was a solid episode. It was it was really nice. We had like come off the heels of our kind of sound victory over Bird Food. Let's call him Bird Puncher. But we didn't defeat him. We just assisted in creating him before he stepped on our face on his way to later glories. But yeah, no, it, I mean, I think Jeff summed it up the best. It really felt like that episode that maybe ends and like pulls out with the camera wide angle shows everybody in scrap wall and it's just like like he said just junk for miles and you maybe even see like a little bit of a differentiation between the spooky thralls area and the also spooky drug necro cult area but you know yeah i think that that was like an excellent welcome to scrap wall episode that then leads us into 47 goo leather <laughs> I love uh, staying on brand with the goo references. Started the episode off with a vignette 
of Vargas in some sort of strange port town where religion is apparently banned. And he meets a guy who sounds like he's vaguely from somewhere that their accents all sound like insultingly fake Newark accents, who (laughs) offers to sell him a religious tattoo. And after that, we pop into the main episode, where we are back in the cathedral. Uh, We discover that uh, Brixby is really up on his skincare with his nice rubbery rat face that is now canon. Mm -hmm. He does that little roller thing over it every morning. (laughs) Um, Lots of collagen. We meet uh, Dinvaya, who has yet another uh, rather interesting accent, which I'm going to ask Sam on that one. The vaguely Russian-esque Eastern European Dinvaya accent. What led to that decision? Uh, that is one of the only accents that I can do and not immediately forget to do it or forget how to do it. So, um, I live in eternal dread of doing the voices of female characters in general. So I'm like, well, what am I going to do for Dinvaya? Am I going to just make my voice a little bit higher like I always do? Or, and then I was like, ah, I'll do a Russian accent. And then it won't matter that I can't make my voice any higher while doing a Russian accent because... You kind of expect a low voice when someone has a Russian accent. <laughs> yeah, she was great. Loved, uh, did not expect the accent, appreciated it from, I mean, especially just because of like how Kite talks. It's just really <laughs> fun to imagine what their conversations were like at, at one time when they did have it the same city. When they were off adventuring together, fighting the Technic League or whatever it was they were doing. And we didn't know what to expect, but the way Sephiroth talked, we were expecting to maybe have to, like, talk this person down. We were all nervous about even going inside, making sure, hey, we don't know if your life alert bracelet went off. We're just going to (laughs) make sure you're okay. We're opening this door. We're outside your room. Then she was like, oh, hey, what's up, buddies? (laughs) Except more Russian. Hey, what's up, buddies? (laughs) I'll I'll stop. Very, uh... A lot of mood whiplash between stepping into the building and having a golem try to murder us versus meeting her and her going, oh, hey, who are you guys? Let's be friends. In Soviet Russia, attack with golem <laughs> is form of affection. So she healed us all up. We gave her the book of Kite's poems, which led to the first of hopefully many amazing... Uh, <laughs> Kite poem renditions by Zach. Well, he doesn't have a lot to do when yeah. he is when it's not whatever day of the week we've canonically established that they glue corpses to robots and make them battle below one of the many religious <laughs> structures. That was Ra- that was uh, Radley though. <laughs> Unless you're saying that Kite's also involved. I thought that's what the that's isn't that where the robots came from? I mean, how did how did Radley <laughs> well, get the robots? I thought right. Kite was definitely part of this. Yeah. So, well, he might be looking the other way. I don't think he's directly involved. He's a good, upstanding, neutral citizen. <laughs> I don't know about this. My headcanon is that they are like the classic WWE announcers <laughs> of the '90s that we grew up with. Um, I'm not going to be able to. Jerry name Lawler them. and the other. There is, we go. Uh, 
Yeah, the one that's like, oh, God, he killed him. (laughs) Oh, it's a slobberknock. Oh, Jim Ross. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, see, that is canonically how I remember. I mean, the two of them, but they maybe look like the old men um, puppets from the Muppets while they're doing it. They look like Waldorf and Statler, and they talk like WWE (laughs) announcers. That's amazing. That's amazing. We need fan art of that, everybody listening to this. (laughs) Explosions. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that that poem blew me out of the water that was for the people at home none of us knew that was going to happen that was entirely out of left field just zach going oh yeah let me read one to you and just i mean that was amazing uh, sam jeff anything from you guys on that <laughs> I do. <laughs> that was totally um, a shock, and you know, obviously, I I think you can hear our reactions pretty live in the episode. <laughs> we just gave it total silence and then a round of applause. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally not expecting it. <laughs> Impressed and delighted. Yeah, I just finished Tim Powers' uh, "Stress of Her Regard," which is like a book about. Byron and Shelley and Lamia, weirdly enough. Um, he's the same dude who wrote on Stranger Tides and like a ver- and Declare, mm. which is basically like a Delta Green book. Yeah. On Stranger Tides is a really good book. Yeah, he's I mean he's amazing. He's written he's without a doubt, like probably my like favorite fiction writer hands down. So like definitely jumped into the a lot of the romantic poetry off of that and we just happened to be doing this and i was like well i'm complete this out little and i've got 30 minutes so i'm gonna write this down real quick and yeah no that's where it came from it was a fun little outlet uh kite is an excellent character see i i like to think of him as as the warrior poet type the you know the the robots and the corpses and the battle bots and whatnot and also the poetry and the softness and the meta magic rod that he owes us that we will not forget about. <laughs> no. No, it's already scrolled off the top of the page. It's it's gone. But yeah, that wasn't also the end of our exposition, right? Like we had we had a little bit from, from Sephiroth, but then we got filled in a bit more about uh all of the yeah. gangs. Yeah, she gave us a bit more information on the actual gang leaders. I believe she was the first person to mention that Red Tooth was a Yasoki which seems odd that Sephiroth didn't mention that part, but... And she also gave us more info on Mero, who we'd briefly heard about from Sephiroth and from uh, Captain Captain Pants at the uh, Algernon's grave. Yes. Captain Pants. As in the, the rest of them are not wearing pants. That is the only way that he is distinguished. Oh, they all have to wear shorts because they're not as high of a rank. You get promoted uh, yeah. to Capris and then High Waters. Numerian kilts. <laughs> Although I do like Capris. I like the idea of action. Tactical Capris. <laughs> <laughs> Three or four cargo pockets going down the side. Yeah, some nice tasteful High Waters. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it was it was interesting learning a little bit more about uh, the leadership specifically because that did, I mean, we had encountered Smilers up to this point we knew them mostly, I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of interested in how did Smilers, before we knew about Marrow, how did Smilers kind of like track for you two? Uh, 
Jeff and Jero specifically, because kind of in my head they were like, I don't know, there were some like Spawn Ranch, like Charlie Manson drug addict, like yeah. wacky, like we chewed off all of our lips. This is what they show you in the 90s dare videos about why you never even yeah. look at a marijuana cigarette or something because this will happen to you. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, I don't know. I'm kind of interested in how uh, it you both thought about the description of the Smilers. Yeah, I am dense. And so I didn't even at first put together that their wacky Pepto-ness was them being like drug addicted people. All I saw was these lipless horrors that are trying to take over a fort. These guys are pretty crazy. And then we go into town and they're trying to pretend to not take over the Silverhawks. And I'm just like, these guys are just kind of crazy and weird. And, you know, Cracklos had said something about the rumored cannibalism. And I kind of dismissed that as, like, I mean, I don't know, rumor's weird, huh? And then, boy, it seems just like the tip of the iceberg. Like, I think these guys aren't just nuts. They're like, they're kind of crazy, evil monster people. Oh, no. Oh, and there's an (laughs) necromancy involved. This, This is getting worse. I personally was very much not expecting the necromancy part uh the like zach said i got very much a like crazy drug cult vibe from them uh like the first kind of mini boss to call him that that we fought with them was the guy who had replaced one of his limbs with an axe so that was uh and then the whole thing of like the lips and the smiling and they all had the they all had uh soothe on them instead of healing potions and then like they just very much it reminded me of uh oh, what's that rob zombie movie with uh it's kind of like texas chainsaw massacre s house, house of, of a thousand, thousand corpses? corpses house of a thousand corpses yeah. yes it reminded so, me of like the guys from that <laughs> i was gonna say i originally clocked them as kind of the most like war boys yeah. um, because obviously we were going to have the tons of Mad Max. Yeah, Mad Maxi, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was something along that line of kind of like fanatical drug cult situation. I just didn't realize that it was, I mean, yeah, you're right. There were definitely like some red flags, like cannibalism, <laughs> like replacing your hatchet with a hand. So maybe, you know, all of this pearl clutching is sort of undue, but yeah, it, it was a little like, oh, Oh, and they're a necromancer. That isn't smiley at all. I did, um, when I was reading the stuff in this book, it made me do a double take because I had seen Fury Road fairly recently. I'm like, these are war boys. And then this book came out a year before Fury Road, so maybe it was predictive. And the aesthetic is kind of more the Joker from uh, Dark Knight Mm -hmm. Returns with the, you know, facial scarring. So, But yeah, just the Mm -hmm. absolute madness of the Smilers is... They're wild as a villain. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. They are very wild. They're truly chaotic evil. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We're also told about that apparently Hellion is using these gangs that he's brought together under his control to attempt to dig something up in the uh, Thralls territory. And we hear about an interesting thing with a 
or no, not in Thrall's territory. He took over the Thrall's territory because of something else we heard about, which is the relay, which the second we hear, heard that, we all go, oh, well, that's what he was sending the power to. And Dinvaya is the first of what ends up being many people to mention that the relay oddly seemed to stop working a few days before, at which point we just go, huh, weird, for the first of many times. I don't think we've ever actually yet mentioned to anyone in town, oh yeah, that was us. <laughs> Are we missing out, Sam, on on rep in this town by not saying, yo, your boys and girl turned off that power <laughs> We didn't name the rep until next episode. That's why I'm being a little coy about it. But yeah. We did hear about it this episode, though. Dinvaya was uh, the first one to mention the possibility of gaining reputation by doing things <laughs> around town. Yeah. I think that you probably could have maybe achieved a little bit more reputation a little bit earlier um, if you were spreading the words that you were the ones who um, stopped Mayanda, because I mean, people knew who Meanda was, but maybe that's a story for another machine learning. Oh, we also, this episode, uh, Fargus explained why he doesn't need to carry around a pouch full of uh, butter and bat guano like Brixby does <laughs> because of his uh, BS magical uh, religious arm, which lets him cast spells without components as long as they cost less than 100 gold, which is 90% of all spells. So we've discovered how that works. Uh, so no, uh, people listening, I have not been uh, cheating by not using <laughs> spell components. That is actually built into his character. It's one way to eschew materials for sure. Yeah, and I think it just works a lot better with what I have in mind for him. Like, he wouldn't have taken issue materials because he wouldn't know what the heck that is. I like the idea that, like, he is so focused on believing that he is a divine spellcaster that he basically has manifested the ability <laughs> to cast <laughs> arcane spells with a divine focus. Just secretly the... a Rasmurin priest. I know how <laughs> you function. Uh, so you said it's 100 gold pieces? That's pretty... It's the yeah, the cost of the religious symbol you're using, which I did the most expensive religious uh, tattoo you can do, which is 100 gold. That's cool. Yeah, I was I was wondering, like, my mind immediately was like, does that cover stone skin? But that's like 250 gold pieces. I was trying to think yeah. about, like, other expensive component mm -hmm. things, but that is really neat. Yeah, the thing is, you could actually go higher if you could find, like, a religious symbol out in the world adventuring that's even more expensive. Because it's not tied to a specific object, you just have to have one on you. So, like, if Sam drops, like, some 500 platinum <laughs> uh, symbol of Gorum later into the thing, that could work for that feat exactly the same. You just gotta Made turn... entirely of printer toner. That is... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, if you just got to turn that tattoo to slowly turn into a sleeve. And then I've got five tattoos together that form one whole story. So now I can do anything under 500 gold. I'm sure our uh, benevolent GM would allow that. It's a, it's a tapestry. In there. Well, you could just get some pure sky metal added into the tattoo and convert it to a symbol of Hellion. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh. I'm sure his god would love that. 
We also discovered that Dinvaya has a bunch of really interesting uh, technological junk for sale. We don't end up picking up anything at the moment, but we kind of look through everything. And we see some very interesting stuff that we may come back and get later. Oh, we also find out, uh, talk about Vargas some more, because I'm the host this week. Uh, <laughs> the weird person who appeared and smiled creepily at us before Garmin attacked us was a person from Vargas's past, who apparently was the person who uh, left him armless and scarred up. So that was a interesting little thing to learn. And also interesting thing is Asher has another visit from the uh, PlayStation sack boy who <laughs> actually speaks to him this time. And he gives him some very vague, creepy uh, talk, basically. He says, can see his home in the shadows and that he'll eventually have to face the shadows. So that was just very interesting and creepy and adds to the mystery surrounding what the heck Asher is. I definitely didn't, as a player, think that was Sackboy. I, I don't <laughs> think Asher nor I could identify the source of this voice, which only made it more mysterious. Yeah, well, I thought it was said in the thing that it was the weird sack creature again, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe I'm lying. Um, nothing was visible. It was, it was just a voice in mm. the shadows. Um, okay, then I am 100% wrong. It was just a mysterious voice in the shadows, which is honestly even creepier than the giant sack monster. Maybe it was sack, the sack boy. Nobody knows. See, I, I always imagine it as like a less, I don't know, unhygienic oogie boogie style character but i guess sack boy is sack boy actually has buttons on their face but i don't know yeah. i mean i just i guess if it had was oogie boogie we would have been able to determine by the voice but i would like to hear sam do the oogie boogie voice uh that takes some real warming up and um, <laughs> i'm not saying i can't do it but i'm not saying it would be pleasant for anyone <laughs> we'll just file that for later i'm sure that's what hellion sounds like um yeah. yeah. And we ended the episode with a uh, fairly big milestone, all of us leveling up to level five, during which uh, Brixby took himself a prestige class. Did. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, it was nice. Um, it was a fun, we discussed on the last like machine learning that we had talked uh, about no. how we didn't <laughs> have a, a, a clear conception of what our character classes were going to be when we were originally applying for this podcast or building this party together. But it, it became pretty clear that um, even though it's not like optimized for this adventure, I, I wanted to play a prestige class on here. I wanted to play specifically Arcane Trickster, obviously. So it felt like a great achievement. Live till level five because I didn't think I was going to. There were multiple points that I felt that it was just the end i was slipping off my rodent mortal coil but no i made it still alive at level five yeah i'm kind of bummed that you know no one else was tri-classing with me but there's still time now this is the last level up any of y'all are gonna get <laughs> don't for a moment think jeff probably didn't even consider tri-classing because you know your boy did <laughs> <laughs> oh 
I've definitely tried class in play-by-post. I don't think I've actually done that in a more traditional campaign. Yeah, I've got a try class going in a in a Wrath of the Righteous play-by-post right now. And uh, some of us may also have a horribly, horribly optimized uh, TriCast character waiting in the wings to uh, <laughs> possibly jump in later. Uh, yeah, fractional uh, bonus, base bonus situation is fantastic for that because you could theoretically have like a BAB of one I think at like level five, if you do, I don't know, like two, maybe like four levels of wizard, one level of rogue. But yeah, what were you both the most excited about level five? Honestly, not that much. I did not get a super lot as a uh, magus at five, uh, just a couple extra little bonuses. And that was it. Uh, six is a bigger one for him. I was excited for Asher to hit five because that was paladin four when you could channel positive, your lay on hands, hit dice goes up, and it's just, hmm, it's good stuff. Get a second smite. Level four for Paladin's pretty great. Being able to channel is a good one, just that burst healing or burst damage if you want it. Yeah, uh, time will tell for sure whether Asher will keep going the Paladin route, but at least four levels, it was, uh, it was too juicy to say, you know what, three was good. And as Zach mentioned with Brixby nearly dying and all of us nearly dying, the healing seemed like a like a worthwhile route <laughs> and what Asher was doing yeah. more often. Because you know what, listeners, you can't misfire if you don't shoot a gun. So you just <laughs> boop with boop sticks or space drug guns instead. Brings us to episode 48 which is titled Big Bad Daddy Points, which we probably should get around to trademarking at some point. <laughs> which it started with our announcement of our first live uh, Brian show, during which uh, I had a nervous breakdown in the creation of, because it had been a very long time since I set up a multi camera streaming and I couldn't get it to work for like the first 20 minutes. So that was harrowing. <laughs> But you did a good job. You technomanced. <laughs> For sure. And and I, pr- I believe I mentioned it at least uh, amongst the cast before we were live. My first attempts to live stream when I was GMing uh, the world premiere stream, the first person to ever stream the Ministry of Extra Mundane Affairs, for a ch- and it was for a charity stream. It took a literal hour for me to be able to get audio to be heard on Twitch. And it was mostly just because of my complete ineptitude in different audio inputs and things, trying to capture. Uh, so, I mean, you, you crushed it in comparison. And also, in, without comparison, you just crushed it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so we started the uh, episode up. Zach gave us another little uh, Zachademy on prestige classes. Do them. They're fun. <laughs> yeah. And then we decided, you know what? Maybe we will spend the first half hour of this episode l- looking through all of those things Dinvaya has and deciding whether or not we should buy them. And we did. <laughs> and I'm sure it was super exciting for everyone. 
Everybody loves a good shopping uh, episode. Yeah. Best part was, at the end of it, we still had not bought anything. <laughs> but we thought really hard about buying a gravity clip. So... <laughs> The gravity of the situation was too much for us. <laughs> yeah, it was really pulling us down. <laughs> the uh, very capable four headed out, decided that we were going to go introduce ourselves to Redtooth. We then realized none of us knew anything about her or where she was, and decided to go kill a manticore instead, because that seemed like the easier thing to do instead of uh, getting involved in a social event. So we headed off to fight a manticore, at which point it was Zach that did it, who coined the uh, amazing phrase, Big Bad Daddy Points. I have Zach on here. I could have sworn it was Jeff, but I guess it was Zach. No, it was it was Zach. He who created uh, You Suck. He who created <laughs> Junk Punch and... Probably Bird Puncher, too. I think all of the cool terms. In fact, the only (laughs) cool thing that I can claim is coming up with the idea to name this show Machine Learning. And I'll feel proud of that (laughs) until I die. But everything else that was cool, (laughs) it's all Zach. (laughs) I think the reason I think it was you is because I think in the universe, Asher is the one who has said the phrase the most. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's also, it's my favorite to hear it in the Asher voice. Um, <laughs> the big bad father points. <laughs> yeah, just that like deadpan. <laughs> well, with that like, yeah, like spaghetti western Leone yeah. sort of like mysterious gunman, but just referring to themselves <laughs> as a big bad daddy. It's just, uh, yeah, no, it's too much. Um, but yeah, no, it was, that was an interesting thing in general because I think Sam, I have it in my notes that you originally referred to it as our Scrapworth. Yeah, that's what it's called in the book, but um, I've gone on a mission ever since to grab every copy of The Lords of Rust and cross out Scrapworth <laughs> and write Big Bad Daddy points. Uh, well, it's it's a cool mechanic in general. Um, it's definitely something that, like, I mean, once we knew about it a little bit, it was just like, oh, wow, like, reckless, rash decisions that everybody knows about increase our reputation i guess we can maybe pull that off as we proceed to aggro and blow up a bunch of things but like it gave me very big vibes of the original just cause the one where he looked like johnny cash because the entire point of that game is just you go around and you wreck stuff and you kill people to gain notoriety (laughs) and it was it's the exactly the same thing, and that's one of my favorite video games of all time. So I love just the idea of doing that in Pathfinder <laughs> is amazing. See, I was thinking of it as the Grand Theft Auto, like, yeah, you punch a civilian, stars. you get one star, but you kill a manticore, yeah. you're going to get up to four stars, and the FBI is going <laughs> to start showing up. Of course. <laughs> Helicopters, you're running from them. It's a whole big, whole big thing. Yeah. You just got to jump the tank over the bridge. Uh, but for me, it was really fun just to ta- tangent a little bit off on the Big Bad Daddy points to turn a sandbox kind of feeling book into just uh, which way am I going to approach this into really making us think it's not being completionist at this point. It's the more we do, the more effective we're going to be. And it really sort of gave meaning to all of the exploration beyond just 
me the player i am i am curious so i appreciated that uh nicholas logue good work yeah no that was very good because like you said uh a lot of book twos tend to be sandboxy and a lot of mm-hmm. APs and a lot of, honestly, a lot of just D&D stuff in general, like even 3.5 and 5, a lot of like book two, chapter two stuff tends to be when they introduce the open world and you just kind of wander around and do whatever. And it was nice to have, like you said, something that felt like a tangible goal, a reason for us to be wandering around murder hoboing things like it still feels like we're following the quest of the game while we're doing it we're not just doing it because this is what you do in an rpg well yeah and then i think it also definitely continued to harp on the like um you know in my mind scrap masters arena sort of is in this elevated position maybe not physically but above the rest of scrap wall and like that is also kind of much like the Thunderdome, um, has this sort of judicial, it like distills the, the sense of justice and social structure of like the entire scrap wall. I feel like flashy signs of violence, very gladiatorial sort of way of conducting yourself, rival gang situation. It was, it was nice. It really, like everyone had said before, I just kind of want to echo it, really reinforced how immersive this like little sandbox could be and it was nice because i agree with you guys as well usually paizo adventure paths there are exceptions put you on like a railroad MacGuffin for like the first book and then you pop out the other side with a reason to be heroes and then they kind of just put you into the setting and this was a really fun one um i would say in comparison to say like book two of skull and shackles which i'm really intimate with or something else so yeah no i've deeply enjoyed this mechanic even before we renamed it because it gives context to our our violence which we do well (laughs) so with earning big bad daddy points in mind we head off as i said to the manticore and we discover that it is oh actually before that uh asher and kira have a Nice little discussion while we're out walking. So that's some nice character building between them. Asher still seems weirded out by his strange night visitor, but he's not letting it put him down in front of everybody else. Keeping up his uh, strong Clint Eastwoody vibe. We have a little bit of a talk about uh, leveling up in in in-universe terms, which we've already kind of beaten into the ground here on Machine Learning, talking about like how ridiculous it is in-universe time that's gone by and how powerful we've got, so we'll just kind of gloss over that, go back and listen to our previous ones for more detailed discussion on that. And we discover the Manticore is a mutant Manticore, and he's really messed up. He's got a dripping green radiation all over him, he's deformed and nasty. I mean, really has like an excellent kind of like new metal aesthetic going on with the almost chainsaw chain scrap metally barbed wire nest that it had i mean i imagined the whole situ like whole situation around the manicore was soundtracked by like coal chamber or something along that effect uh, appropriately early 2000s we fought him Bricks uses his uh, one of his two go-to spells and immediately glitter dust the manticore, blinding it horribly. 
and probably uh, making Sam very upset, <laughs> as always. Vargas uh, uses, for the first time in the podcast, a weapon when he takes out a uh, dinky little slingshot and proceeds to do zero damage with it because the <laughs> max damage it can do is less than the DR that the Manticore has. So that was fun while it lasted for, I think, two rounds. Asher does his amazing John Woo work and gets up to the top of the cliff so that he can fight the Manticore face to face in melee range, as is customary for our gunslinger. And he does get a four times smite critical, though, which is insane. I mean, the amount of damage that you can do with those two classes combined is nuts. Yeah, smites are serious. Um, funny thing, I don't know uh, if people listen to Find the Path, Rick Sandage will not let people play paladins who have the smite feature included, only if the archetype takes it away. I don't think it's OP. I think it's great. I could imagine it being OP in Tyrant's Grasp, where you're constantly facing evil undead, and Spoilers. then you're just like, okay. Oh, my bad. Um, <laughs> where you're constantly m- massaged by the tyrant. I don't know what the grasp would normally oh, be. Like. Well, you all know what it's about. <laughs> um, but uh, People know from our <laughs> Discord, we are very... Uh, Sweet. Tarvalon. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I say Tarvalon. Uh, we're very pro, uh, <laughs> pro Wheel of Time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I also in that battle, I believe you let... That was the first time you cast Acid Arrow, right? That was, yes. Yeah, and that was like one of those like Bricks Vargas copied some spells down and, mm-hmm. and traded some things. And that was cool. That's always like a... Because, you know, this was one of our first like flying... This was our first flying... Wyvern. Oh, yeah. yeah I forgot about yeah. that. <laughs> the other mutated flying yeah. creature that I just kind of Which mashed also together. fought Asher from five feet away and bit him several times. <laughs> no. And did I learn? <laughs> nah. <laughs> I mean, that's also, that's there's tactics on that side. Sam, Sam is identifying a powerful ranged combatant and screwing up their plan by getting real close while the rest of us just bumble around. But yeah, no, I think it, it was it was interesting watching our tactics because, you know, we have a couple melee-based characters, you and Kira specifically, and Brix isn't much more effective outside of, like, 30 feet. So, yeah, Asher, as always. It's one of those situations where the value of having a ranger in the party or something along those lines, to be able to soften up a creature before they're in range of the melee members of the party is huge and having a 25 foot range where he's really effective it's it's better than nothing for sure and mm-hmm. i enjoy it but there would be fewer close calls if i was playing a ranger <laughs> totally. that is an interesting thing about both like the gunslinger class and the arcane trickster class is that you know, the bread and butter is usually like Scorching Ray, like short, close Ray spells. So it's like, even if you're dealing ranged stuff, you are one charge away from getting wrecked all the time. So it's it's certainly not that like, yeah, I can just hang back like a hundred feet and pick him off with a longbow. It's been a long time since I played a bow-based character. 110 for a composite. 
there are gunslinger archetypes that are more long range, like musket type ones, but then you run into the problem of those can't be short range. Like, it's built into it that you, like, can't shoot somebody with a musket from five feet away. <laughs> then you're stuck with the opposite problem, where when it does eventually get to close quarters combat, you're basically useless. Well, Asher's going to live forever, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's always that light hammer. Oh, boy. Yeah, I will look forward to bringing that into book six. <laughs> and after misfiring 36 guns all on the ground, standing atop the pile with the plus one light hammer in hand, Asher will fight whatever the final iron god is. But, Clarence. you know what gun is not going to misfire and fall to your feet? One that we found in the spooky yeah. lair. Uh, that was a cool gun. Incredibly cool gun. It's not Time Worn, right? Is it Time Worn? No, I don't think so. Yes, I didn't think so. EMP pistol? Yeah, because I believe Sam mentioned, I don't remember if this was mentioned on air or not, but Sam made the claim that that is the most expensive item in book two. <laughs> the EMP pistol? Yeah, yeah. That, that's a pricey item right there. Yeah, we found that thing. We also found, uh, we got a, a magical axe, so that was pretty cool. More uh, weapons to give to Kira. The, uh, like Asher, she is also a walking armory now. <laughs> and we found the uh, Ring of the Ram, which is always a interesting, fun little item. Who did we end up giving that to? To Asher. It was Asher. I knew there was a discussion between whether it would be better with him or Kira and I couldn't remember what the final decision was. See, if I remember correctly, my thought process behind it was if someone is close enough for the Ring of the Ram to effectively like move them or whatever, Asher probably does not want to use their gun. Or like someone wants to get five feet away from Kira, good luck. <laughs> like, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is that is where we want you to be. Well, maybe 10 mm-hmm. feet, depending on, on what she's using. So, yeah. And I mean, it is also, it's neat because that's one of those ones, kind of like when we talked about the Swarm Bane clasp and obviously the big six, this comes up a lot in, in a ton of different adventure paths. I'm sure all of you have seen the Ring of the Ram and at least half a, half a dozen different Pathfinder Paizo adventures. And I think the reason why is that it is so useful. Because, I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. obviously, it's got its utility outside of combat, of, of opening doors, opening barricades. I mean, you could probably solve problems with it. I haven't seen, like, a ton of creative uses for it, but, like, the potential is really high, depending yeah. on, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it's basically a portable battering ram the size of a ring. <laughs> like, there's a lot of uses for something like that. Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that just made a, a ton of sense. And, God, I can't wait to see that EMP pistol be used. Just because that is, I mean, adamantine bullets are cool, but not as cool as, I I can't even remember the stats on that thing. Yeah, wow, this bad boy is 2d6, and it uses one charge of a battery each time. It has a range of 50 feet, um, and is semi-automatic. What is that as a special quality? It's basically free rapid shot. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. so cool. That makes sense. That's what I figured was that it was like a, what is it, like the speed bow enhancement or something like that that just like adds a an extra shot in there mm-hmm. like rapid shot maybe at your highest bab i can't remember but either way this is this thing is cool for folks that maybe don't remember off the top of your head it deals terrible damage to robots it can harm androids and creatures with cybernetic implants which we kind of touched on a little bit old greasy had one in his head 
but a creature critically hit by an EMP has to succeed a DC 15 fortitude save or be staggered for 1d4 rounds. It is a cool item for sure. It is expensive. Mm. It is 6,000 gold. Um, and it is too good to sell. Yeah, no, considering how many things we've run into that either are robots, are androids, or have had parts like not only did Sandville have robot parts in him, like that wyvern that attacked us was a cyborg. We've had golems made out of robots. We've had uh, gearsmen. We've had androids. Uh, <laughs> we had just all kinds of yeah, stuff we have run into. And in a campaign set in Numeria, all kinds of stuff we're going to continue to run into that's vulnerable to this gun. And it is cool because, um, I guess I didn't phrase it this way, it cannot harm living creatures. Outside of, you know, like an android, whatever you consider. Yeah. I guess that's still not considered living or a cyborg yeah but yeah no sam brought it up it uh it just allows semi-automatic allows for an extra iterative shot at a negative two meaning you compare that with rapid shots fire three times at a negative six um which is crazy totally crazy but yeah excellent gun thank you so much for giving it to us we are going to use it on all of your creatures and you're going to regret it Yeah, we're going to use that all of them. We're going to fire it at Kolgara until it goes empty and be confused why it's not hurting her. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what the EMP stands for, empty. <laughs> <laughs> that leads us in to the final episode of this month, Interdimensional Bag Fights, which I'm laughing because the <laughs> context of that, which is still hilarious, uh, re-listening to the episode recently, to write these uh, little outlines for us to use, I burst out laughing again at that part. <laughs> uh, but before we get to that, we have a vignette of Asher that appears to pick up immediately after the last one we saw of him, of him rushing into a burning building. We see him find his hat. He mentions promising someone that he would keep the hat safe. And he then hears a... Very strange voice. In fact, it's something very similar to uh, what recently happened to him in the present, where he hears a voice that says some strange stuff. They ask him about what is he. He says he doesn't know. So uh, that really adds to the mystery that even Asher doesn't know what he is. But then whatever this is appears to uh, save him from the fire as he is strangely teleported out after which he is then immediately arrested for arson and also for murder. So uh, that's that's a pretty big one. That's going to be real interesting to hear eventually where that goes. Yeah, they probably kill him for it. Yeah. Yeah, no. I'm sure in the next one will be uh, his uh, execution at uh, Fantasy Shawshank. <laughs> Let's so. see. Oh, right here. I have that Asher took the rare ring. So... Uh, I did know who took it because I myself wrote it down in our outline that Asher decided <laughs> on the rambling, but he did not decide it until the next week. Yeah, no one's ever going to use it anyways. We uh, make some Tremors references uh, where I reveal the fact that I own all of the movies and both seasons of the TV show, which was not a joke. I love that stupid series. And I remember Sam was impressed. <laughs> Specifically, Sam was impressed. I I write down every nice thing that you say about any of us in a book so I can read it after a particularly hard episode. Uh, that three by five card's getting half full, man. <laughs> Size 16 font. Yep. And, and likewise, Sam writes down in his notes, 
Izzy is mean about one every mm-hmm. three or four episodes. <laughs> it's true, and underlines it. mean. Uh, that is also canon. <laughs> but yeah, we, uh, I've heard there's more than one way to skin a manticore. Uh, the only way that we know is poorly. That's the method that we know. <laughs> uh, we tried. Yeah, that's another time as Asher is saying that it would be good to have a ranger in the party, someone who actually knew how to uh, take a trophy from an animal. Because, yeah, we failed. Vargas failed the role. Uh, Asher failed the role. I believe that I'm trying to remember if anyone else tried. Nope. Or... <laughs> we didn't I think try. we were the only two that had uh, survival, actually, I think was the reason. But eventually we collected enough uh, chunks to... <laughs> readily prove to anyone in town that we had taken it out so that we could get our daddy points. Oh, and this was the app that uh, I believe Jeff brought up the really interesting subsystem from the supplement Ultimate Wilderness. They talked about taking trophies, right? That's mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the uh, reason I believe that we did survival because I think you brought up that that's the role used for that in that supplement. Yeah, it's the multi-step process of identifying the right parts and trying to get them out and... Mm-hmm. We uh we failed pretty badly, but that is yeah. just I mean for for me it's on brand because historically, I think Asher has succeeded at at this point in the show maybe two, at most survival roles to do anything useful, uh, so it's like yeah that's fair that tracks. He is not a wisdom based gunslinger like every other gunslinger. Well, at least he uh, got himself some. Nice new interesting scars uh, having to walk back and forth through the barbed wire that Sam decided the manticore somehow ended up back inside of between last episode and this episode. I'm sorry, do you mean <laughs> leap? Because the rest of us schlubs like ambled through the, the razor wire. Oh, that's correct. Actually, Asher did not have to deal with that at all because he just jumped over it both times. The rest of us had to wade through barbed wire. I think I took one point on the way out, but managed to get in unscathed. And Kira just, just <laughs> Kool-Aid man through. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it was really, I mean, Sam, so was it in the book that there is a Zoom care in Scrapwall that we spent the remainder of the episode waiting for our tetanus boosters at? Or did you just come up with that? Because I thought that that was pretty smooth. <laughs> Well, it's important in a place run by the Lords of Rust uh, <laughs> that you've got your tetanus boosters handy because Lockjaw is serious business, people, and can't be out there adventuring and dying of tetanus. <laughs> Get your tetanus booster. It's on everything. It lives in the soil and stuff. It's it's all over the place. And that's another thing. It's not something, it, contrary to the old wives' tale, you don't get it just from rusty metal. It lives in soil. It's just rusty metal tends to be in soil a lot and a very easy way to open a wound. Tetanus is serious, and yeah, keep your boosters up for that. But after we uh, got horribly cut up in the razor wire, we went back to our original plan of let's wander around until we eventually find Red Tooth, which oddly enough worked out for us. We wandered around for a while. And just so happened to run into a group of Red Tooth Raiders who were involved in a active firefight against some Smilers, which they were badly losing, possibly because the Smilers had actual guns and the Raiders had hand crossbows that were about three range increments outside of their <laughs> usefulness. Uh, so we 
intervened in that. Brixby, once again, uh, proved himself to be the bane of DMs everywhere by casting <laughs> color spray. I'm getting the mileage out of that color spray. And like when it comes down to it, where, and here is my thought behind this. I do want to make a small case for it, which is I'm not a huge saver suck kind of guy. I don't love like, I think enchantment magic in particular is kind of creepy. So I don't, I don't love those types of builds as it stands. But you know, every once in a while, when you're going up against a bunch of yucks who have weapons that if they crit you, you're dead. As you mentioned before, the gravity of like martial situations where there's a f firearm there is so much higher. I mean, even when they weren't critting us inside Algernon's grave, we were getting screwed up. So I feel like that tactic of trying to, because I mean, you know, it's one thing when, when you're dealing with a whole bunch of lackeys that have, what have we dealt with? Improvised clubs primarily up to this point. But yeah, no, I mean like mm -hmm. a literal firing line is kind of scary that can take out a member of the party yeah. really easy especially if you focus fire so this is the reason why i don't love to roll it out all the time but boy howdy i don't want to get shot to death the defense rests color sprayed him up managed to get ourselves a couple of uh captives and we went with the raiders back to their uh red tooth's warren where we talked to a couple of them we asked about like hey we have these hostages is that gonna hit us anywhere with the smilers which point we were basically laughed out of the room and told that uh smilers do not care about hostages at all and then we make the amazing joke that led to the title where we're told we could maybe just toss them into the bag of holding with garmin <laughs> and have ourselves an interdimensional bag fight <laughs> Which, uh, that would give, uh, Radley's, uh, robot arena run for its money, I think, on, uh, the pay-per-view. <laughs> yeah, and it was, I mean, this is the first time, like, we've seen Yosoki before, initially, under the Mountain and Torch, but this was the first, like, actual main character. And that was neat. Yeah, we, you, you might want to bring a chicken to someone's house prior to a cultural dance, but you <laughs> might also just want to bring some prisoners, because that seemed to be our thing. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know if this was the episode that we mm -hmm. discussed. We were cultivating a carceral aesthetic, but we were. <laughs> we had a, we were just a citizens arresting people left and right. <laughs> I think the last thing that we have on these notes that are great is that the, the, the art for Red Tooth was so red. Yeah. Uh, it was just, I mean, yeah. um, so I'm, I'm kind of, again, wanted to check in on that. Uh, but yeah, Redtooth's design is just awesome. She's got these like barbarian braids, which I don't know how that works with the Yasoki because most of them don't have human hair in their art. <laughs> uh, but that's very cool. She just very much looks she, like she looks like something that could be on the cover of Brian Jacques book. She really does. That will do it for our recap. And we will be back in just a moment with Q&A. Hello friends, Fantasy Michael here. That's right, Fantasy Michael of the number one chain of craft stores in all of Numeria. I've been getting a lot of letters from our customers asking about this year's midwinter craft extravaganza, and it is with heavy heart that I'm here to announce that the craft extravaganza is going to have to be canceled this year. 
I'm afraid a certain competitor, who has as many first names as she has faces, has gone behind all of our backs and registered Craft Stravaganza as a trademark with the Galarian Intellectual Property Foundation, or GIF, and they've sent me a cease and desist letter on use of the term. So I'm afraid, until we can come up with a suitably whimsical pretend word to encapsulate the spirit of this sacred, sacred event and replace Craft Stravaganza, the Craft Stravaganza itself will remain on indefinite hiatus. Please direct your ire and your sad puppy dog eyes to the offices of the gift, and of course, to the craft store competitor who shall remain nameless, but she knows who she is. All right, and we are back, and we are going to do our Q&A. So for those who don't know, we do have a community Discord, the link to which is on our Twitter and also on our website. And, and on that Discord, you can ask us questions that we will answer to the best of our abilities in every month's Little Machine Learning. So our questions for this month... Our first one comes from Captain Collateral Damage, who asked, <clears throat> excuse me. Our first one comes from Captain Collateral Damage, who asks, in or out of character, what does everyone think Hellion really is? And I think for this one, we're going to start with Sam. <laughs> well, I think in character as Hellion, you know, I'm pretty sure. It's a god. It's straightforward. And out of character as also Hellion. Surprise! I've been Hellion all along. Very straightforward. Well done. Concise. Uh, well, here again, I feel like I don't have enough Pathfinder lore knowledge to make an educated guess, so I'll make an uneducated guess and say it's definitely the uh, uh, Wizard of Oz situation, right? Like, we were joking about it before, but I'm pretty sure both in and out of character, it's just a guy behind a curtain who, uh, you know, if you are familiar with the <clears throat> behind the story, Wicked Lore, accidentally got into some sort of balloon and found himself in a different land, and now he's stuck there just being a real jerk. Um, in character, Kira agrees, but maybe doesn't know what a hot air balloon is. I don't know if they have those here. Uh, and I honestly, out of character, agree 100% with Izzy and Kira, I, the player, am positive that this is some, like, old, decrepit Androphan guy. Like, I think of, I've been saying Wizard of Oz uh, among the cast, but what really comes to my mind probably as a big Fallout fan is Mr. House from Fallout New Vegas, who, in the lore of the game, is this guy from, like, pre-war who basically sealed himself in medical chamber and has been running the city of Las Vegas through robots for like 200 years. But the actual guy is just this like decrepit half mummy. And I'm imagining it's something like that, like some guy that survived the crash and has been using the uh, tech to keep himself alive and to pretend to be a god. Uh, and in character, I don't think Vargas really has an opinion on what Hellion is other than he's positive he is not a god. You can become a god, like, you can get drunk and trip over a rock and become a god. Like, that is canon. <laughs> so, our second question, then, comes from Commodore, which is, how much pre-coordination 
did you all do for this party composition? Now that builds are online, you seem kind of somewhat a little bit balanced-ish. <laughs> There's a lot of modifiers on the end of <laughs> somewhat that. Somewhat a little bit balanced-ish. Uh, speaking on my own behalf, I basically had an idea in mind, and other than changing my class to one with slightly more survivability and also one that's a little easier to play for an audience... There was no, absolutely no other consideration put in, in terms of any kind of like party balance or anything for me personally. Uh, what about? Let's see. I started with Sam first last time. What about Izzy? Uh, yeah, no, I relied pretty heavily on you all and what you had already chosen to, when I was making my character. And it, as I've said a million times before, this is really the first like, uh, path fam. Pathfinder campaign I'd been in, and I knew I wanted to hit things. That's my thing. Like that's regardless of the game, I usually go that route. So I was very excited when everyone was like, "We cast from far away and or shoot and do some mild punching." Um, so I was like, "Cool, I can I can tank." I'm that is a hundred percent my thing. Uh, so I don't know fifty fifty. Like that's what I wanted to do, and it was also what the party needed. Does that answer the question? I'm gonna call it a solid thirty seconds of conversation over Discord. <laughs> over a year ago. <laughs> well, I think that with the concepts that everybody brought at the very beginning, there wasn't a single sp- well, spellcaster. There were no spell slots on the entire party. There was a brawler, a barbarian, a cavalier, and was Brixby a rogue at first or an investigator? Yeah, and I think that like once you all sort of knew what, where you'd started, there was there were some changes. Um... And then when we had that second test session with the um, TPK, because the horribly overtuned encounter at the end, um, then I think there were some changes after that one. I think the synergy has happened pretty organically over the, the course of the, your level ups and just sort of working together and, and figuring each other out, which has been pretty cool. Okay, so I think next one we're going to go with a little bit uh, sillier one got a question here from Bellandora. What is your favorite way to consume yogurt? Uh, to be honest, it, hopefully I'm not going to get kicked off the podcast for this, but I'm not a fan of yogurt. Uh, what? <laughs> if I'm going to eat some type of like curdled cheese-based product, I will usually do like cottage cheese or something, or maybe uh, like a nice sorbet or something like that. I am not a big yogurt person. Uh, well, as we all know, I'm very particular about textures, and yogurt, in my opinion, in all forms, is just the worst of them. That said, I do love, and this is, this is again, what, the only thing that I can do, uh, Yasso's frozen yogurt bars in mint chocolate chip, I could eat every day until I die. Fantastic. I shouldn't, because, you know, dairy, but so, so good. Love those. Huge fan. Ice cream? No. Sour cream? No ranch dressing no yasso frozen yogurt bars mint chocolate chip exclusively <laughs> thank you yeah i don't actually eat um dairy yogurt i like vegan yogurt and mostly in indian food and um do it as like a tzatziki sauce or maybe in a smoothie so uh one more question a uh, final question from crazy piano man seasonally thematic question time 
What is your favorite and or strangest winter holiday tradition? And I think I'll leave this one up to whoever wants to answer first. So let's surprise the audience with this one. Um, I don't know if this is particularly strange, although it certainly is. Uh, well, it's not a more favorite. Okay, then we'll <laughs> we'll put it in between one of one of those. Um, I always watch probably a few times just on Christmas Day with my mom the 1970-something musical version of Scrooge with like oh gosh Albert Finney as a as a Scrooge relatively young but then also very old it's absurd and outdated uh and ridiculous and I love it um we just introduced my sister-in-law to it for the first time this year and she was shocked at how much yelling my mom and I do just over the movie but like I mean if you're not screaming all of these lines and and your so worst like cockney you're watching accent a rocky you know, horror basically right it's 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 meant to be um interactive so uh, if anyone needs to know how to dance <laughs> don't come to me unless it's a very specific thing and that's going to be the end of my story someone else go uh okay i got one that's kind of an odd tradition uh it's not a super big thing and it wasn't really anything this year partly because my uncle had a smaller tree and partly because there aren't really any young kids left. Uh, my youngest nephew is, I want to say, 13 this year. Uh, but we have a thing going back to when my sister and I were kids, and I think probably before us, probably my older cousin. And then we did it with my sister's kids, but my uncle collects uh, lots and lots of ornaments. He collects like a bunch of Christopher Radko and stuff. He's got all kinds of crazy rare ornaments and stuff and always puts them up on a big tree and he hides on the tree Christmas pickles which are he's actually got multiple of them because apparently this is a big enough like Germanic tradition that they that multiple different people who make ornaments have made them so he's got several different ones and he hides them throughout the other ornaments and if you find one you get to open one of your presents a day early are we going to get any clarification on what a Christmas pickle is, or...? It is uh, just a standard blown glass Christmas ornament, but in the shape and color of a pickle. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, Sam, you didn't answer yet. What's your uh, Christmas tradition? Um, I don't think I really have any um, specifically interesting traditions um i do have um my grandmother used to have a, a kiln i have no idea why she had one but she went through a phase in the 70s where she just made a giant pile of ceramic christmas decorations and i have slowly accumulated them um, so I have a small army of pretty creepy Christmas decorations that are I love, and I love putting them all around the house, and my wife hates them. So it's a very special thing. I have, like, a giant snowman with tiny eyes, and she thinks he's terrifying. And I put him in the house Aww. and have him stare at her and, you know, antagonize your loved ones on Christmas. It's my favorite tradition. I mean, everybody's got to have creepy stuff. I have a... Uh little toy red cap originally from Ireland that apparently a relative had given us years ago and found it up in my attic during a move 
and it had clawed halfway out of its box. <laughs> or rather, it had been moved somehow in storage in such a way that its head had spun around backwards and one of its arms had punched through the box. So uh, I immediately took it and started hiding it around the house until my sister freaked out and refused to <laughs> here. Its name may have been Rasmataz. I never asked it. It's actually probably still in my room at this house somewhere. Uh, so that, though, will do it for this month's machine learning. Uh, thank you, everyone, again, uh, for the Q&A half. If anyone has any questions, feel free to join our Discord and toss them in, and we will answer them in the coming months. So thank you to the rest of the cast for being here, and I'm going to bed. I draw. Good night. I was literally just thinking, as soon as I emerge from this room, I'm just going to scream at Jeff's entire family. Christmas gift. Christmas Eve. Oh, no, I'm going to mess it up. No. <laughs> I will lose. That was not that. That <laughs> sounds right. You defeated yourself. Right. Those books were, I mean, that was my thing when I was in like third, fourth grade in particular. I loved those yeah, books. I loved those books. Uh, yeah. Crushing through those. And like, you know, I think there's even like a Redwall themed like actual play out there somewhere. I can't well, remember who's there's doing. a game. Oh, yeah. There's Mouse Guard. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it Which is. Which I haven't really yeah. looked at, but yeah, I mean, I think it's yeah. all very red wall. Yeah, I'm sure there is because I mean, they had they there was even. Do any of you remember the cartoon they did? That was it was the first two books adapted. Like the first season was uh, Red Wall, and then the second season was Martin the Warrior, hmm. and it was not horrible. The production value wasn't great, but it followed the stories good. Yeah, it had that like Watership Down vibe to it unfortunately yes <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah it, yeah it was a very similar art style to that yes no those books i loved redwall books as a kid i read uh first one i read was lord brock tree i saw it in line at a grocery store like the paperback of it i'm like oh that looks cool there's a badger on the front <laughs> and read it and loved it got i own most of my things still in old ratty paperbacks uh very good books very going back and reading them which i've read a couple since i was a kid the plot is very samey and it's very uh he follows a formula that he does in every book which is probably why he was able to put so many out yeah there are a couple that are a little bit different like um i want to say mariel of, of redwall is pretty different but mm -hmm. I haven't looked at it in yeah. 25 years. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I mean, I loved those books. It, it started with Mossflower, I mm -hmm. know. But I always loved the Badgers. The Badgers were the best ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I liked Lord Broctory, because that one's all about Salamandistrin and the Badgers, and they fight the big army that comes from over the sea. Very fun one.